So I'm going to read a wee bit, just ten verses here. But I want you to think, think seriously about what I'm saying because this first verse is what I call the verse that trips me up. Listen to it. I will bless the Lord at all times. That's King David said that. Now, if, I, if I'm there with King David, can say that. All times. When I'm in health or when I'm sick. When there's food in the cupboard or when there's no food in the cupboard. When things are going well, I have a job. Or things are not going well and I have no job. At all times. I, I can't read that without pausing and thinking about it. And that's what I want you to do. Just listen and, and think. It's Psalm 34 you might want to read when you get home. Uh, and read it slowly and thoughtfully. I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, he, he was a fugitive. He had to flee for his life. He was in exile. Although he was the king of Israel, he had to live in a cave at a time. Hiding from the other king, King Saul, that was trying to kill him. Then his own son rose up against him and started another kingdom and tried to overthrow his dad. He had a lot of adversities and problems, but he says, look, in all those times, the good and the bad, I bless the Lord. Right. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. And their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried. He's a rich king. But when he thought of God, thought of himself, he was just a poor man. Like you and me, born in sin, shaping in iniquity, needing divine help. And so here it is. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack. Now if we see a lion, we back off. But if you see a hungry lion, you better run. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. I recommend that portion of scripture to you. From all my heart, it means so much to me. And it will mean so much to you if you read it slowly, thoughtfully, prayerfully. And fit yourself into it by the grace of God. And what God did for King David, glory to God, he can do for you and me. He's a great, almighty, eternal God. Psalm 34, verses 1 to 10. Don't forget it. Right. 
In the early 1920s, my mother and father had been recently married in Belfast. They were Belfast people, and they had their first baby in due course. And uh, they decided to go to America. Now, there was a big exodus. There has been for many years, of course, of Irish going to America. And they go for different reasons, but they all go to seek a fortune. My dad probably did that too, but he never got it. He had to borrow money to get home here, there, <laughs> eventually. Uh, of course, he hit the slump in 1929. But anyway, in the early 20s, with a newborn baby, mum and daddy went to the States. They were only there a year or so when they had their second child, and it was me, wee Bobby. I was born in America. So I'm an American citizen by birth. You can tell that by my accent, can't you? <laughs> but then, Mommy died when I was two years of age. She's buried in Philadelphia. And my dad put my sister, she was two years older than I, Kathleen, and myself, put us into a home so that he could carry on. He was a journey, carry on with his work, trying to make some money. And uh, times were hard and difficult. But I had a granny back in Belfast, my mommy's mommy. Grannies are great people. Some of you are nodding your heads. Yeah, granny was precious to you, I'm sure. And this granny, she got a picture of the two wee children in the States. Their mommy dead. And the children were living in a home. She called us the wee orphans. And she sent for us and asked my dad to send us back to Belfast, and she would look after us. Now, I was four at that time, my sister was six, and we crossed the Atlantic in one of the big liners without a guardian, a family guardian. The Orange Order were running an excursion that year. And my father just went to the leader of the Orange Order, it was running the excursion, and asked them would they kindly look after the children for the voyage across the Atlantic. And they did, as best they could. And uh, we arrived safely in Belfast. My granny had been saved through the preaching of W.P. Nicholson. She loved the Lord. She reared her own family, and then she sat in to rear her grandchildren, not just us two, but our cousins from other relations of ours. But about the first thing she did was Give us a good feed of porridge, and the second thing was a feed of shorter catechism in the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> Sent us to Sunday school and all that. So I was raised in Belfast, a district called the Hammer, up the Shankill. Uh, it's just a lot about the corners of the streets, and getting in all the mischief I could get into, and getting out of as quickly as I could. And it was great in those days, the, the big policemen were on the beat, on their big flat beat. And you could, you could you, you, we kids, we got to know how long it took them to do the circuit, the beat they called it. And we could have a good football game before they get back again. By the time they came back, we were sitting down good boys. But then again, some of them got, would get ways for us and they would reverse the order of the beat and, and turn around halfway and come back and catch us on at the football. And they were one big old fat cop, oh dear, dear. 
We call him Pussyfoot. He's a big, flat feet. Look, we walk like a duck. And he's, he's, he caught, almost caught his own playing football one day. We start running. He start running after us. Come here, son. Come here, son. <laughs> right? <laughs> I had no sense to cops. Come here, son. <laughs> I had great times. But anyway, coming up to 14, uh, we left school at 14 in those days. <laughs> we had a school teacher, and we called them school masters. I don't know what they call them these days. But he lived at the other side of town from where I went to school. I went to school up in Shankill, Glenwood. And uh, he had half an hour, half an hour in a tram ride in the mornings. And they'd be reading the paper to see any jobs that would suit the boys because we're all getting ready for leaving school. And he, he was anxious to get his jobs. And he came in one morning and he says, McAllister! So McAllister, I had to go up to the desk and stand at attention. He had a thought was in the army. He says, they're looking for a lad in the shepherd's dairy down there in the shankle. Well, we didn't see if they'll take you. So I went down and they took me. So I was in school at nine and I was in work at ten. <laughs> Some of you can't get a job as quick as that. And they're going to give me ten cents a week. And then the big director came around and he, he and my, the boss of the shop and the big director were talking about the side there. And I was working away trying to let on I knew what I was doing. And uh, but they were discussing about giving me a raise. So they gave me two shillings of a raise before I'd done a day's work. So I got promoted from 10 shillings to 12 shillings. And then I was only in there a week. I know it wasn't, it was in about four days. When the school board came after me, I'd left school too early. Uh, yeah, I was supposed to leave not just when I was 14, but I had to finish the term, the school term. And there was another week to go, so I had to go back to school for a week. Oh, I felt in disgrace. And the boss says, here, you're right, lad. We'll keep a job for you to come back. He says, sorry, mister. Sorry, give it to somebody else. So I never went back to that job. However... I um, oh, got another job, slicing corned beef. People used to come out. We shop up, up New, New Lodge Road, up one of the back streets. <laughs> I was slicing corned beef all day. It was a penny a slice, I think it was. But I, the pennies went to the wee man's, pot, the wee man's cup there. I never went in my pocket. And I, sl I sliced corned beef for a whole week. He didn't give me no wages at all. Things were getting bad. It was like the pressure was on. <laughs> But then I got a chance of a job in the I got a chance of a job in the co-op message boy. And then I got another job. I decided to be an iron turner. That's the lathe operator. And I uh, got a job in Greaves's Mill on the Falls Road, from the Shankar Road to the Falls. And uh, it was a great engineering shop. It was one of the best engineering shops in Belfast. They did all their own repairs. And it was renowned to be really expert. It was up there in the league with Mackey's. And uh, I was too young to start my apprenticeship. You start your apprenticeship at 16, not a day before. And when you did your five years, you did it to the last day. And if you're a day short, even you were out sick, 
You still had to do that day. You, had, you did five years to the day. But you couldn't start before 16. But the boss was kind. He says, all right, if you're going to be at the lead, I'll put you in the store, make you a store boy. And you'll be giving out the tools every day to the men. You'll get acquainted with the tools for the trade. And that was a good start. So he put me in the store before I was the age to get at the lathe. And uh, in, in the store, there was a bench and an alleyway down into this, the workshop. And then there was a wee side alley, dead end, way up the side. But I, the, the men expected me to stand at the bench and look down the alley and watch when the foreman was coming because they were dodging the foreman up the wee side alley, the dead end. And I was supposed to alert them. Here's, here's Scotty coming. Scotty was the foreman. I didn't like it. I thought, boys, I did. That's deception, isn't it? What sort of men are they? I was talking to myself. What sort of men are they? But there was one lad. He came in. He didn't go up the side alley. He stood at the front of the counter and got his tools as quick as he could. We, he almost ran back to the job. He was always in a big hurry. And he had a big smile on his face. He was so different. I said to the store man, who's that fellow there? Oh, he says, That's, we call him Bobby Jeffries. He said, what are you asking me that for? I said, well, he's too different from all the rest, isn't he? I says, he's a Christian. Boy, my heart got hungry to be like Bobby Jeffries. I was only starting to work. But I didn't want to be like these loafers up the side. Dodging people. Conscience must have been terrible. I wanted to be like Bobby Jeffries. And so I, I became hungry. And there were other things, of course, that made me hungry for the truth. Uh, I often say to people, when I was 14, I started talking to myself. You don't need to wait your 90 to talk to yourself. Talk to yourself <laughs> early and enjoy it. And here's what I said to myself at 14. If God can't satisfy me, nobody else can. I figured, you see, at 14, I've maybe all of life in front of me. If I don't get an accident and get killed and early in life, all of life, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to enjoy it? If the, Allah, the Almighty can't satisfy me, nobody else can. So those are the thoughts going through my mind. Now, I was just called a corner boy. We all had our wee gangs. Two or three streets would have its gang. Next two or three streets would have their gang. And sometimes they're nice wee, uh, not conversations, but bits of fights between each other. But uh, the, the Presbyterian Church, 1940, January, they bracketed off a week for what they called a simultaneous mission. And they arranged that the preachers would exchange pulpits. Now, they didn't take the pulpit with them, but they, they changed preaching pulpits. The preacher changed pulpits. And they, each preacher was given over to a full week's gospel preaching. A gospel mission for a week. And all the Presbyterian churches the same week. I said to the lads at the corner, boys, there's a mission starting in the church tomorrow. I'm going to it. 
and I'm going to make the best of it. Meaning in my heart that if there's an opportunity given for me to become a Christian, I would do that. I would trust the Lord. Those are the thoughts that were going through my mind. Went to the mission first night. Oh, the big preacher, big country man. <laughs> he was a very well educated man. If you're writing his name on, the, on an envelope and you're writing down his titles, his degrees, he had that many degrees, you'd have to go around the other side and write some of them. He had loads of degrees, but he loved the Lord. He was a real Christian. And he was scared to life, he had to look at him, he was a big old rough fellow, but I'll never forget what he preached. He talked about God was, in the Old Testament, God was going to destroy Sodom because it was a wicked city. Judgment of God was upon it. And Lot was living there. Lot was a nephew of Abraham. And he was, a, he was what we call a godly person, but he was living amongst these rascals in this awful city of sin and destruction. And God sent angels to tell Lot to flee out of Sodom because God was going to destroy it with fire and brimstone. And the preacher preached like that. And he said, you know, if you're not a Christian tonight, you're just like Lot. You're living in a city of destruction. God's not going to send an angel to get you out of there, he said. But he sent his precious word, the gospel and the Bible, to tell you how to get out of your destruction. The Bible tells you, flee from the wrath to come. The soul that sinneth it shall die. Because there is wrath, beware, lest he take thee away with a stroke. I remember those things, the big preacher. I was 14. But the message was going home. And I was hungry for the truth. And then the big preacher said, well, if you flee from your city of destruction, where are you going to flee to? And he put it in his big arms. Big country man he was, big farmer. Although he had all these ordinations. Flee into the arms of Jesus. Where Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, flee tonight. And he says, if you want to, if you want to get right with God tonight, you want to get saved, there's a couple of empty pews at the front of the church here. Come up here and kneel down. And five of us went forward to the front pew, knelt down, and one of the church elders came and pointed me to the Savior. And I found out later that church elder was another carpenter that worked with my dad. He knew, he knew my dad no more than he knew me, but um, my dad was glad that Bob not led me to the Savior. Well, now, boys, men, that was the beginning for me. I was saved by the grace of God, and I knew it. I went home and told my dad, and from that day to now, I've been busy boasting about Jesus. That was 70 years ago. I've been preaching the gospel for 70 years. I was 14. 
I'm 85 now. And I'm yelling every chance I get about the goodness of Jesus. I'm not talking about myself, but I'm talking about my Lord. The Lord lifted Bob McAllister and made me a new creature in Christ Jesus in the moment of time. And I got busy helping in the Belfast City Mission. Then I met my girlfriend. She was a mill girl. Worked in Eden Dairy Mill up the Crumlin Road. She knew what it was to run down to her work in bare, not bare feet, but in shoes on her feet, but they were letting in, she may as well have been in her bare feet. She was soaked anyway by the time she got into work. She was a mill girl. I was a corner boy. And the Lord of glory saved the both of us and brought us together. And as we got busy in the Belfast City Mission work, oh, the mission put us to work, I tell you. He gave us a list of people that needed visitations, some in hospital wards, some in their own homes, some living down the street. Go and visit them. And then go back and give reports how you got on. And we led many souls to the Lord. We were only teenage Christians. We had no great Christian experience of theological training, but we had salvation through the Lord. And we were changed and transformed. <laughs> My wife used to say, we put our pocket money together. She had thruppings and that sixpence, the old money. We did, oh, that's actually what we did. We, we, any money we got, we'd have turned it into the family. She had and I had. And she got thruppings back, I got sixpence back. And we put the money together and bought flowers and fruit and take it around the old people. Couldn't afford money for the tram. You walked everywhere. Saved your money, your pennies, to buy flowers and fruit for the old folks. And we led many souls to the Saviour. Now, I could go on for the next half hour about this missionary fellow. He was great. He was powerful. He sent you out with gospel tracts. And in those days, some of you know what I'm talking about. People used to line up to get into the picture house, big lines of them. So he just went down the line with gospel. He had no trouble. He had a congregation waiting for you down the line, giving out tracts. Then we the bookies to give out tracts, into the pub to give out tracts. And we had air raid shelters in those days. The war was on. He'd get you inside the air raid shelter for a prayer meeting. Then he'd get you off the prayer meeting, stand you up on top of the air raid shelter to preach. <laughs> he had a big pulpit up there. You, you just stood up there and yelled the gospel out. Oh, we had great times. Great times. That was training ground. You know, they call this man Wark, Lewis Wark. He was a businessman and became a city missionary. When he think of a collection, at that time there was 30 mission halls in Belfast and 30 uh, missionaries, a missionary in each hall. 30 missionaries and 30 halls. And none of them were paying for themselves financially. They all had to get a subsidy from the General Assembly each year to keep them going. But work, when he's taking up the collection, he would say, right, we'll take up the collection there. And if you have no money, don't worry. Let the basket pass. If you have some money, put it in. And if you have no money and you need some, take it out. You haven't trained your pastor here, right? <laughs> <laughs> but nobody ever did. 
And it was the first of the 30 halls that was self-supporting. Oh, we learned lots of things from that man. How to live by faith as well as preach by faith. We learned many, many things. I'm tempted to go on, but I better get move on here because... I'm glad that you didn't put a clock. Oh, there's a clock up there. <laughs> Should have brought a brick with me. <laughs> well, my wife, she, she was my girlfriend at the time. Uh, she went off to Bible school. If I start talking about her experiences in Bible school, we need another session tomorrow night. But I'll not do that tonight. I applied to Bible school, and I was accepted in a Bible school. And uh, before I could get to the Bible school to get training, I got a letter from Uncle Sam, that's the United States of America, reminding me that I was an American citizen, and there was a war on, and soldiers were needed for the American army, and I was eligible as an American citizen. They collected 300 boys from the United Kingdom who had all been born in the States, left the States in childhood, and they were brought up in England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. But they were American citizens, and we were given a certain time limit to report. Uh, and if we reported in, we would be drafted into the American army. We call it conscription here, they called it the draft. But 24 hours before the time was up to be drafted, I volunteered. The Irish blood, you see. All the Irish men in the British forces are volunteers, aren't they? I didn't want to break the tradition. So I volunteered for the United States Army. Now, before I went to the army, I'd noticed it was during the time of the war, Second World War, not the Boer War. And uh, I noticed in our own church, some of our Christian young men who went out to serve in the Air Force, and the Navy, and the Army, they went out as Christians. But when they come home and leave, spiritually they were cold and seemed to be out of touch with God. In other words, they were backslidden. I noticed that. Nobody told me. But enough intelligence to see it. And here I was called up for the army. Or a volunteer to go to the army. <coughs> Before I went to the army, I was at a tent mission up the Shankle on a bit of waste ground. The preacher was preaching about Trusting God for the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. Now this isn't salvation. You were saved. I was saved tonight, 16th of January, and knelt down the front of that Presbyterian church, and it says, Lord, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. Lord, you died for me. Lord, forgive me. Just in whatever language I muster up, I was earnest, and God knew it. In simple faith, I was saved. I was born again. I was a new creature in Christ. And then I got out, giving out tracts, praying, reading, helping people, and leading souls to the Lord. But this was about two years later, and the preacher there was saying, look, you need the fullness, the unction, and the power of the Holy Ghost in your life so that you can live 
in victory for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but I was hungry for that. I wasn't backslidden, but I wanted all that God had for me. And so he made an altar call, and that we tent, and I come up, and he lined us up. There was a lot of people who wanted the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the Reverend S.T. Nelson, the Methodist preacher, he says, look, I want you individually to pray and ask God for the fullness of the Holy Spirit to give you power and authority to witness for Christ. And I never forget when I was called upon to pray, I prayed, Lord, baptize me with the Holy Ghost and fire. And please, Lord, don't forget the fire. I wanted to burn for Jesus. I wanted to glow for Jesus. I wanted the holiness of God to burn up any dross that was left. All of God. All of God for all of me. Hallelujah. That's the secret, man. No reserves. Burn up for Jesus. So what was I going to do going into the army? Some of these fathers come back in a backslidden state. Well, when I got in the army, I said, now... You're trusting God to be victorious in the army. It's a big mission field. How are you going to do it? You notice I'm still talking to myself. <laughs> I said, well, Daniel in the Old Testament prayed, prayed three times a day. And if he prayed three times a day, I can pray three times a day. And I did in the army. No matter what bullet I was in, no matter how many men were in the room, sleeping in the same place in camp cots, I said to myself, the army gives us three meals a day. Americans don't, don't face the way you think they do it in the army anyway. They give you three meals a day, not four. We, we, here, we all get four, fish and chips and all going to bed. But they give you three. I said, if the army gives me three meals a day, after the meal, each time I'll go back to my camp cot and pray. And I did. Oh, what a testimony that was. What a strength. And the men, the men got to the stage where they, they, they expected me to come back in prayer. The men that got to know me. And I'd pack, pack the tracks and give her tracks in the army. Oh, what a time. I was only in the army about three months when the master sergeant called me in. He was the fellow in charge of the service records. He says to me, Mac, there's, there's, there's a mistake here. In the service records, you're not insured. I said, no, it's no mistake. What do you mean? He says, he says you have to be insured. Of course, don't forget, he said, there's a war on out there. And the, the army gives you the best insurance in the world. They give you 4% interest on your capital money. And if you're killed in operation in combat, your next of kin gets $10,000 compensation. The best insurance in the world. Everybody's got it. Come on. Sign up. I said, not at all. What? I was a rookie. No stripes. <laughs> he had six stripes. He was in charge. He said, what are you talking about, Mike? You'll have to be in church. I said, no, don't. What are you talking about? I said, I'm not going to die in this war. What? <laughs> How do you know? 
There's men killed every day. You could go out there and be shot any time. Well, I says, God has called my girlfriend and me to be missionaries in Congo. <laughs> I'm not going to die in this war. He says, man, dear, you're crazy. That's where I learned that word American. Say, crazy. I was crazy. I said, just leave her like that, Sergeant. He says, come here, Mac. I want to tell you something. United States Army has 10 million of a fighting force. And you're the only one in 10 million that's not insured. <laughs> so I was famous right away. Hallelujah. I got offered a job because of my engineering experiences and knowledge as a turner uh, to be in charge of the engineering of the regiment. I was in the T-46 General Service Engineering Regiment. They wanted to make me in charge of the workshop. I turned it down. I had six stripes. That's as many stripes as you could get. But it wasn't after stripes. It wasn't after promotion. I was after souls. I was speaking to men. I was getting souls saved. I could give you illustration after illustration of leading soldiers to the Lord. See, I learned that before I went to the army. When I was saved, I was working in Greaves' mill with 13 apprentices there at the corner of the workshop. Six of them got saved just through me gossiping the gospel, bringing them to meetings. Maybe somebody's brought you tonight. Good if you got saved. Ah, oh, you'd be able to say, praise God, I went to that meeting. I was offered another job in the cook house. Not that I wasn't a cook, but they were going to train me to be a cook. And there were six stripes for that. That was as many stripes as you could get again. I turned it down. I went to the chaplain. I said, I want to be chaplain's assistant. He says, Mac, the what do you engineering shop? You'll get six stripes. I says, but I want to help men to find the Lord. Make me your assistant. He says, but look, if you, tell, if you become an assistant to the chaplain, you only get two stripes, you'll be a corporal. I said, I'm not worried about stripes. I'm after men. I want to share the gospel. So he took me on. And I was his assistant. He was a Presbyterian minister from the States. Then the day came when he was due to go back. He had enough time served. And he called me into his office and he says, Mac, you're staying on a while. You're not ready to go home yet. You have your time done. But right, time's up. I'm going home. He says, listen, Mac, when you get out of this army, I want you to come to America. And I'll put you through six years, seven years, he said, seven, I'll put you through seven years theological training to make you a Presbyterian minister. And I know you have a girlfriend in Ireland. Bring her with you. And she'll live at the ranch with my wife. I'll pay for all your education and we'll pay for the keep of your girlfriend living with my wife 
it'll cost you nothing. I said, Chaplain, thanks. Very kind of you. But I couldn't go. Why? Listen, Mac. I'll pay for everything. I want you to be a Presbyterian minister in America. I said, no, can't go. Why? God has called us to be missionaries in the Congo. What good would I be trotting around the United States of America with a dog collar when I should be in Congo? <laughs> eh? We've got to get things balanced out, sorted out, and lived out for the glory of God. And if God's calling you to do a job, watch it. There'll be all sorts of voices on the side by way of distraction. Jesus set his eyes like a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to go through a mock trial and to scourge, to be scourged and to be crucified. But he went. Are you willing to live for Christ? Are you willing to die for Christ? Oh, I've had time to tell you about some of the Africans that were tortured in the rebellion. Hands tied behind their back and their feet tied up, but they meet their hands and tied. And water poured on the ropes to tighten the knots. And then the body's thrown with their hands and feet tied at the back, thrown into the driver and the rebels beating them with the butts of the rifles. <coughs> All we want you to do is to deny Christ and become one of us. We'll give you a commission in the rebel army and those dear African men who were Christians in their pain and agony, lying in their own blood, time and again, kill me if you want to. But I will never deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We need reality. We need reality. My wife and I have lived 40 years in the Congo, living by faith, and we never missed a meal. <laughs> Even got fish and chips tonight for none. <laughs> oh, the Lord's good. Well, anyway, this chaplain went home. Then there was another chaplain sent. And I was to be assistant to him. He was a Baptist man. And if he didn't go through the same rigmarole, Mac, if you'll come to the States, we need men like you in the Baptist church. I'll put you through. I he'll hold it. You nearly think that they, they, they compared notes. <laughs> it said the same thing. But I had the same answer. No. Thank you. Very kind of you. Great offer. Appreciate it. But God has called to be missionaries in the Congo. And so missionaries to the Congo we were. Congo experiences. Oh, before I went to Congo, I had to do Bible school. When I got off the arm, I went to Bible school. Birkenhead, England. I remember, I had no secondary education. Left school at 14. Got into Bible college. After the first three months, I got a, we got a, an examination. 
Forced to examine the Bible school. It was a three-year course. It was the first three months. And the, the, first, the first exam was a literature exam. And the principal's, the vice principal's daughter, uh, wife, sorry, the vice principal's wife, Mrs. Stanley Banks, she was the tutor. And she was sitting at one side of the table and I was sitting at the other. And she gave me a book to read. Read from it. Said Shakespeare on it. Didn't know who that was. She asked me to read. So I started reading, doing the best I could. Stumbling through there, some big words and all that. I looked up and she, she, big tears are coming down her cheeks. I said to myself, boy, is there something wrong with this lady? What's up? Do, do we call an ambulance or what? She says, Brother McAllister, is that the best you can do? I thought I was doing all right. <laughs> she says, that'll never do. She said, what, what, what books have you read? I said, none. Oh, she says, come on. You read books at school? I said, did not indeed. Well, I, I've read the Bible since I got saved. That's the only book I've read. Come on, she said. You've read, and you know, it was a holiness Bible school, but she knew all the boys' magazines. You, you read the Hotspur, and you read the Dandy, and you read the Rover. She knew all the all the boys' books. She was a genius, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I said, No, I haven't read any of them. Oh, come on, you've read. No. Well, you'll have to learn to read. Well, did my best. Failed that exam, by the way. <laughs> but I never failed another exam after it. Three years at it. And some of the other students had degrees before they even came into the Bible College. Dr. Philip Rigby, a medical doctor, wheeling the wheelbarrow through the garden to put the compass on the lettuce that were growing the fetus. And it made me the head boy. And I was to say to these big fellas, go there, do that. There's no limit. I repeat, there's no limit to what God can do with you. If you'll give everything to him, he has everything waiting for you. Don't restrict the Lord by unbelief. The God whom we serve is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think. Well, the army were great days, witnessing for the Lord. A lot of VD in the army, venereal disease. And the army, American army, provided a medical kit, a preventative kit for the men who were going out to commit adultery with the German women. The war with Germany was over at this stage. The war with Japan was still going on. We were getting ready to go to Japan, and then the bomb dropped, the big bomb dropped there, and it didn't go. But the army saw to it that these preventative medicines were available free for every man when he was going out in his free time. 
knowing that they'd be associating with the German woman. And you're supposed to take a kit, the preventative kit, to keep away the venereal disease when you were going out. But they also put on a compulsory lecture every month to try and educate the men how not to do things, keep themselves clean. One month, the medical officer would give the lecture, and he would talk about the dangers of venereal disease and how to prevent it. But he was talking from the medical point of view. Another month, the chaplain would take it, and he was talking from the scriptural point of view, or supposedly. The religious point of view, we'll say it that way. And then the third month, it was the captain of the regiment, the old man as we called him. We were all 18 or 19 year olds. He was 30 years in the army, a real old hardened soldier. And he was taking it this month. And he gave a lecture, I can't remember his lecture, but I remember what he said. At the, at the end of it, he says, Man, I'm not telling you to go out and not have a good time. Go out there and have a good time. I go out and have a good time myself. Old boy of 30 years in the army. Disgraceful. But I'm telling you to take the precautions provided. Be sensible. And as he said that, the Lord said to me, you better say something here. He's leading the lads astray. Then the devil got busy and said to me, don't be stupid. If you get up there with your Belfast accent, they'll not want to listen to you. And if you say anything against the captain, <laughs> you'll end up in jink, in jink, in jinx. You'll be in prison. The bottle raged. Now listen, men, if you love Jesus and you're serving him, whether you're here on the mission field or wherever you are, there's a cross to carry. There's a banner to be carried. I belong to Jesus. And you'll be tested and tried. You've got to deny yourself. Take up the cross. Stand up for Jesus and follow him. Then the captain said, anybody got anything to say? <laughs> I said to myself again, Bob, here's your chance. Now, you've heard people saying that sometime or other their knees began to knock. Well, that's a wee phrase people use, but I tell you, it was a reality for me. When I got up there, my knees were knocking. I'm not kidding you. And the devil was laughing at me. And the devil was threatening me. I'd end up in jail, talking against the captain. But the Spirit of God was burning in my soul to say something for Jesus. I stood up. I said, men, some of you are Roman Catholics. Some of you are Protestants. Some of you are Jews. 
I knew that because I'm the chaplain's assistant. And I have to get the room ready for your services. It's part of my duty. Not one of your religions allows you to do what the captain said. I said, if you go out there and take a German woman and have a relationship with her, you're sinning against her soul, you're sinning against your own soul, and you're sinning against Almighty God. And the Bible tells me, and I'm telling you, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Because there is wrath, beware, lest he take thee away with a stroke, and a great ransom cannot deliver thee. Men, you're responsible before God. And then I gave him a testimony. Mind you, he didn't spend as long at it then as I'm doing tonight. <laughs> but I told him how I'd been saved, and how the Lord had kept me from that sort of a life. And he could do the same for them if they put their trust in him. So I delivered my soul. It was time to sit down. I fell down. <laughs> oh. And the devil said, now you've had it. The old man got up. 30 years in the American army. He says, man, Forget all that I said, but never forget what the corporal said. The corporal's right, and I'm wrong. Meeting dismissed. And as the boys rushed to get out the door, a wee rookie, 18 year old, came rushing up to me with the tears running down his face. Grabbed the hand, nearly shook it off me. Mac, thank you, thank you. I was just about to slip. Thank you. The way you went. Ah, oh, friends, I've had great times in the American army. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. I've seen soldiers saved under different sat, camping out at night, candlelight, way up in the northern parts of France. Two men in a tent, we scotty with me. We Scotty from Glasgow. Mac, read to me from the old book. So we turned up John chapter 3, stopped at verse 16, explained the gospel, and Scotty passed from death unto life. Next morning, he didn't told the boys. Some of them laughed at him, you know, but an awful lot congratulated him, and he still went on to serve the Lord. I can remember I fell at a coffee table one day. I haven't time to go into that. That's a big story. But he got saved. He got saved. And he made, he made a record. It was before the days of tape recorders. I, I'm an ancient card, you know. I, I was here before ta tape recorders were invented. But the, you, you could go to the Red Cross and make a disc. The old, well, there's old 78s, there's 33 and a third record disc. You could make it. And the Red Cross, you paid the Red Cross $5 and they sent it anywhere in the world to greet your family. So he went up and made a record to his mummy and said, Mummy, I've given my heart to the Lord. I met my friend here, Bob, and he did and he said to me, my mummy was praying for me. She's back in the States and I'm here in the military. And she was delighted to hear that I come to the Lord. 
Ah, hallelujah. Okay, well, what about the Congo? 40 years in the Congo. Some people say we're in any of the rebellions. I said, I were in three of them, but we didn't start any of them. <laughs> and we come home to Ireland, there was no other rebellion here. Wherever the McAllisters goes, there's a rebellion. I hope you don't get into trouble tonight. Don't fall out with the pastor now. When I go, anyway. Before the rebels get into our area, we were at the children's home in Stanleyville. We'd gone there to meet our children coming home from boarding school, and we just got them whenever the roads were closed, and we were all caught there, a group of missionaries and missionaries' children, a bunch of MKs. Uh, the writing consul came out to us in his big American limousine, and uh, he said, quick, 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 the last plane that the safety is up at the airport there, and uh, the pilot's still keeping the engines going. He wants to get out in a hurry. But I've reserved 18 seats for you, eighteen seats for you, missions. Come on, come on, quick! He says, "As the last plane out to safety, the rebels are on their advance, right up. It's coming into Stanleyville here." And he says, "The Greek women and the Belgian women are up there crying, and they want your seats, and I'm keeping them for you, missionaries." We said, "Thank you, sir. Come on, come on." Well, we'll have to pray. What? Pray! It's not time to pray, it's time to run! Come on! No, I said. It was God who brought us here as missionaries. And only God can take us out. Oh, he said, you're stubborn, not. So we were. There's no, no, nobody as awkward as missionaries. Whenever they know what God wants them to do, you can't budge them. They'll get on with their job. I'll give you half an hour, he says. I'll come back. He says, thank you. Away he went. We started another prayer meeting. And the Lord gave us a verse from the Word. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, it's a great text from the pulpit. But here we were with 13 little children, all trapped, couldn't get back to their mission stations. And nine missionaries, the rebels were advancing. The last plane out was waiting for us. And God said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The consul came back, called him Klingerman. What's the verdict? He said, we're staying. What? And he went over this carry on again, it's time to run. He left us. He wrote us off as people with no intelligence. It wasn't away half an hour until we saw the last plane go overhead. We were five miles out of town. We said, children, there's the last plane to safety. But we've committed ourselves to the Lord. And the Lord looked after us. And he did. All that group 
were rescued out alive. But there were other missionaries, and there were priests and nuns. Some were shot, some were hacked to death with bush knives. We were actually lined up when the rebels got in. We were held as hostages for four months. At the end of the four months, we were lined up. And the rebels lined up before us. And each rebel lifted his rifle, pointed at a face, a gun at the face of every child and every adult. And it was only then we realized we were in a firing squad, before a firing squad. Our little daughter, four years of age, standing between my wife and me, she said, Daddy, are they going to kill us now? I said, we just have to pray, love. Trust the Lord. Now those rebels, some of them were 13 years of age, some were 14, some were 15, some were even less than 13. And they had big army helmets on that had stolen from the National Army. And if the ears hadn't been there to hold up the helmet, they'd have been suffocated. But they all had big CO3 rifles. And they kept a score sheet to see who killed the most people every day. It was like a game for them. They compared the notes at night time, who had killed the most. And those kind of fellas, lads, with others, who had their guns pointing at our faces. And suddenly, the rebels couldn't shoot. They put the guns down. They said, get back into the house. Amazing. Because at that very time, priests, nuns, planters, were being hacked to death. And some shot in cold blood. But the crowd that was going to shoot us couldn't do it. What did God say? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Man, I'm talking about re reality tonight. I'm not playing here. If you know Christ is your Savior, He's on your side. And He wants you on His side. There's a big world out there that needs to hear the gospel. And he's depending on you and me to take the gospel to them. And we've got to be in a spiritual state ourselves that we can go out and meet any man, woman, or child and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What Jesus Christ has done for me, he can do for you. And what you need is not committees and councils and administration to deal with drugs and drink and all that there. You need salvation. Cleansing through the blood of Christ. What did I read to you? I sought the Lord. He heard me and he delivered me. That means he saved me. Set me free. He can take the drink away. He can take the drugs away. He can take the immorality away. He can make you, oh, he can make you a saint. Hallelujah. A saint in the right word. A man that's clean. Saved by the grace of God. 
and your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that at the end of the road, you're ready for heaven because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. How come those wee children, the youngest was 18 months in her mommy's arms, and went up in the up in the age bracket until a lot of 17 years of age. Kenny McMillan, he was the oldest. How could they stand with guns facing at them and none of them cry? God took over. <laughs> it's as simple as that and as profound as that. When they put us back into the house, one of the rebels went back in. McMillan Reverend McMillan, we were the only two men left in the group at that time. The rest were up in another prison. We were taken out to be executed. Reverend went back into the women and children and with an automatic gun, shot right around the group. And I told my wife, if ever there's any shooting, don't look to see where the bullets are coming from. Hit the deck. Get down. And when the gun started firing, she shouted to all the women, Fall! And they all fell on top of their own children. Harvey <laughs> Ruth said, Mommy, I thought I was going to suffocate the way, way you carried it on me. But that was the protection. The bullets went all over the place. One lad got shot and blew the eye. Another lad got a bullet in his leg. But none of them cried. How come? Can you imagine? Children amidst a hail of bullets in a room half the size of this. And nobody crying. The Lord takes over in wonderful ways. The rebel went out. He thought they were all dead. Bad shot and all as he was. McMillan and I were out in the garden path and they opened fire on McMillan a few paces behind me. He was riddled with bullets, dropped dead. I turned, I said to the rebels, you've shot one of my best friends. They opened up fire on me. One bullet grazed my forehead, taking the skin with it. I remember the days when I was playing cowboys and Indians in the streets of Belfast as a wee boy. Somebody said, bang, bang, you're dead, you lay down. So when I heard this bang, bang, I threw myself down, pretending to be dead. The rebel walked past me. I was lying as still as I could. Another gang of rebels come up in their trucks. They'd got the message from their commander. The big birds have come, that's the airplanes. The paratroops are dropping. Men, we're beaten. Run! Sharpen your bush knives. Every white person, me take the head off it, boys. A man, woman, or child. That was the last command on the radio from Stanleyville, and we heard it ourselves. And the rebels were fleeing themselves for safety. And they stopped. They looked on. Two men dead. They thought. Looked at the house. Silence. They thought they were all dead in there, too. And they went on. My wife, she was the only nurse in the group. Said those men could be bleeding to death outside. 
I'm going out to see if I can help them. I'll put a tourniquet on, save the blood. Another Canadian missionary said, I'm going with you, Alma. So the two ladies come out, they came to me. Yeah. Alma said to me, Bobby, are you all right? I said, yes. She already seen Hector. I said, where's Hector? She said, he's with the Lord. Now, Hector hadn't been with us when we got that promise done still and, and see the salvation of the Lord. He joined us later. And he was the only one in that group that was killed. We brought the corpse in, presented it to his wife. She got up the back steps on the little veranda. She met us. She said to my wife, Alma, has he gone? Alma said, I own, he's with the Lord. And that lady stood straight. She has six sons in that room. And two of them were the wounded boys. And she said, children, cry if you want to. I'm not going to cry. We've given our daddy for the greatest cause on all the earth, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When my wife gave her the news that he was dead, she said, as she straightened herself, the Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ah, Macmillan, he was a farmer from Canada. Farmers are great missionaries. Do you want a definition of a farmer? Well, first and foremost, before I give you a definition, they're like scroogey, they're scroogey. They're conservative to the point where they won't buy a washer if they can make one. They're as tight as a doornail. <laughs> Macmillan was like that. But he could make the washers. He was a first-class mechanic. He was a brilliant carpenter. He was a great preacher. He was a man with a tremendous sense of humor. He and I, my wife, his wife would go preaching down at the market in Stanleyville. He knew Bangala. I didn't. I knew Swahili. He didn't. He would preach in Bangala. And I would preach in Swahili. I didn't know what I was saying. He didn't know what I was saying. But men and women were coming forward in the market. Daylight. To give their hearts to Jesus. Oh, we had great times preaching the gospel. But he was gone. This bullet in the leg of the boy. My wife tried to take it out. She was the only nurse there. The rest were school teachers. Medical workers. Of different kinds. All she had was a razor blade. And she opened his leg with a razor blade. To take the bullet out. That was 1964. The bullet's still in his leg today. But he dedicated himself to the Lord. When his mommy said, children, you can cry if you want to, he says, mommy, I want to come back and take daddy's place. So he went home to the States when he was rescued out. He studied medicine. He went back as a surgeon. He's back in the Congo now. 
when he meets my wife, when he had met, my former wife died, when he'd meet her, he would say to her, Aunt Alma, you tried to take a bullet out of my leg and it was none of my bone. And it's still there. But I love you just the same. Friends. Well, eventually the mercenaries fought their way through, make horror his crowd. The paratroops come in and were rescued out. When a man like Macmillan is shot beside you, something happens to you. You'll never be the same again. He was a man, a missionary, loved the Lord. And we've never been able to replace him. People don't want to go to Congo. It's a land of rebellion. Let me tell you this one. We were held by the rebels for four months as hostages. My wife, our three children, myself, we lived in a wee shack. Call it the hen house. That's all it was. Some of the African ladies would come in from the forest to the outskirts of where we were, up the forest trails, put up a leaf shack, needing maternity help. My wife was a midwife. She'd go out and help them. But this night, a knock came to the door. It was the rebel leader and his rebel soldiers with him. Where's the midwife? I says, Alma, they're calling for you. She went to the door. I did too. He says, my wife's needing help from the midwife. Come on. I says, I'm going to go with you. She says, no, you stay with the children. I'll be all right, she said. So the rebels let her off through the trail. Middle of the night. Dark jungle. Wild animals out there. Snakes and all. Through the trail. And on the way out, the rebel leader says, white woman, my wife, need your help. But if a baby's dead, when it's born, you're dead also. On she went, got to this little shack, just the leaf shack, couldn't see. Where's the woman? There she's over there, down in the corner. Being a true midwife, my wife said what all midwives would say, Mama, this is your first baby. The African lady says, No. I've had four babies before and they were all born dead. My wife remembered what the leader said. If this baby's born dead, you're dead also. She delivered the baby. And just then, I found out where she was. And I came bounding in. The rebels all there with their guns. Army rifles. Threatening to take her life. 
She spoke to me in English. She says, Bobby. She told me what they'd said. They didn't understand English. They knew French. Bangala, Lingala, tribal language, but they know English. She said, the baby's dead. She had this wee dead thing in her arms. I said, hold it out before the Lord. I'm no priest and I'm no clergyman. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I said, Lord, heal this baby. And they did. We baby started to wriggle, started to splutter, started to shout and scream. Oh, we've cleaned the muck out of its mouth. Give it to the mama. The mama got the first slave beer in her life. And the rebels who had threatened to take her life formed a guard of honor while Bob and Alma walked out. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Went back about 25 years later on a visit and the Macmillan boys, six of them, had come back and built a beautiful brick church on the spot where their daddy had been shot beside Bob McAllister. And some of the Africans said to my wife, do you remember the wee baby who was born by the, the, the wife of the rebel officer? Oh, my wife says yes. She said, well, there, there he is now. And here's a young, big, big young fella, African fella, about 19 years of age he was. And they said, he's the superintendent of the Sunday school. <laughs> and there's his mommy over there, the woman that you delivered. She's the deaconess in the church. <laughs> the rebels had told us, you know, when they were in power and control, they were going to wipe out the church. There was no God anyway, they said. But there's more churches in Congo today than ever before. The church is alive. Ah, oh, friends, we should have a clock and put it in reverse and go back a bit. <laughs> A lot of our missions were killed. Some of you heard about Ruby Gray from Dromara. She was killed. She was killed along with other missionaries. Dr. Sharp, his wife and three children from London, all murdered by the rebels to save Ruby Gray. Mary Beer from Ohio, USA. Dennis and Nora Parry from Lancashire and her two children. Jean Sweet from London. Beautiful girl, qualified in French. A new missionary. Never got a chance to teach before she was murdered. What about the sufferings of Jesus? Why did God allow him to be stripped of his clothing, welted on the back and all over the body, bleeding and blistered, and excruciating pain before he was hung on the cross? And the spears put through his side. 
Why? He was only 33. He'd never traveled outside his own country. These days we go all over the world, New Zealand, Australia, Africa, Europe. He'd never left his own country. But he's bruised, annihilated, sacrificed as the Lamb of God for you and for me. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. And as one missionary put it, before he was martyred up in the Brazilian territory, amongst the wild Indians and the Amazon, he said, What was it, Doctor? I give what I can't keep. He has no fool that gives what he cannot keep in order to make gain that which he cannot lose. He has no fool that gives what he can't keep in order that he may gain that which he will never lose. Man, glad to meet you. Sorry to keep you so long. Wonder where we meet again. If you know Jesus and I know Jesus, we can say we will meet again. If not here, in heaven itself. May the Lord bless you. Please forgive me for being so long. But my heart's full. And I want you to know him. The Savior. Who died for you. Even if you'd been the only sinner in the world. He would still have died on the cross. Because he loved you. And he, and he alone, can cleanse your past sins away. Can lift you from the bondage and degradation of this awful life. And set you gloriously free for the rest of time and for all of eternity. God bless you.